Hello and welcome. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. My name is Shay Ryan Douglas, and in this series, we explore community connection, optimal human potential, and transformational collective growth through inspiring stories and conversations with a diverse range of people who are working towards positive change in the world. This is really exciting, and I hope you enjoy this episode. To get the full video versions of all the interviews on this podcast, please visit earthheroestv.com and I'd greatly appreciate it if you took the time to like, share and subscribe. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Surge manufacturing capabilities, broad spectrum antivirals, etc. And look at this. Progress indicators by September 2020. Donors and countries commit to identify timeline for financing and development of the universal influenza vaccine, broad spectrum antivirals, and targeted therapeutics of WHO member states. Listen, you know, as much as I would love to pretend that this is actually something that I'm at least hypothecating, the people who wrote the plan in 2011 are, are you ready for this? The same people, and I hate to do this to you because it actually looks like this was planned because it was, but let me take you to the end of this particular document really quickly and let me show you whose smiling faces are the signatories of this particular plan. And look who it is. You know, these are the same people. They wrote the plan in 2011. And lo and behold, Chris Elias, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Anthony Fauci, the same people who signed the 2011 Strategic Decade Plan to make vaccines the world's platform, signed the document, which is the death sentence. Listen, the death sentence for a huge number of people across the globe. They signed the death sentence of those people when they said in September of 2019, it's time to actually release the bioweapon. And it's the same people, not kind of similar groups. It's the same people. So so it's important, I think, that we have the integrity of saying, you know, shame on us. Seriously, shame on us for thinking that this is anything other than what it is. We, we actually try to find the explanation for it. We try to wrap our heads around the rational way that we can actually somehow justify how irrational behaviors can be done by otherwise rational people. And Sovereign pointed this out, and I just want to come back to this. This is not a human executed plan. These are individuals, these are actors who are executing a plan that has left humanity by the wayside. And whether that's disensouled individuals, whether that is actors, whether that is theater, whether that's puppets is neither here nor there. But shame on us for trying to figure out rational excuses for irrational psychopathic behavior. We need to be really clear on something. Every day we spend going, well, how can we make sense of how somebody could be that inhumane? Is a day wasted. And it's a day wasted because we cannot make sense of sociopathic behavior. We cannot make sense of insanity. And it is foolish for us to actually spend time trying to do so. Wow. I'm blown away. I, I totally agree with you, especially on the, the level of 
time wasting and energy and resources put into what we can't comprehend yeah and so what what is a what a suggestion moving forward for humanity to take action and for what we can comprehend and what would be worthy cause to contribute back to on a daily basis in a way that we can regenerate our lives and our hearts and and also our community and and feel a sense of um fulfillment in our everyday um action you you briefly touched on it earlier when you were saying you know living in the now and and you speak to this a lot in the way that living life in this moment yeah what what else is a really core fundamental for for all of us to grasp that we can move forward with yeah so let me dive deep into that question because you know why not it's the deep end of the pool let's dive deeply into the question I think um, we're confronting a beautiful moment in the human narrative where we get to make a choice. And the choice we get to make is whether we're going to proceed down the pathway of transactional humanity or whether we're going to enter into a world of emanating humanity. And let me unpack what I mean by that. Transactional humanity is a consumerism model. It's a I get because I gave, I, I contribute, therefore I'm entitled. This very, very um, linear process. And, and even when we try to sugarcoat it with spirituality, which I feel like is, is like putting stevia into something and pretending that that's, that's making it better. Um, the, at the end of the day, uh, the transactional world even if you get into the kind of community, you know, microeconomies, blah, blah, blah. The transactional world still unfortunately says that I need to keep score. I need to have an account for how much I put in, how much I get back. And, I, and I'm going to live in a world where my aspirational ideal is some form of equanimity when it comes to did I basically get what I put in? So, so we live in what I would call a regression-oriented minimum standard existence where what we have is enough. And, and that's what we have, enough. Now, an emanating life, in contrast, is actually one that realizes that life is its own self-sustaining energetic, which means that that which is within me, Right. From the very simplest thing, you know, what drives the SA node in the myocardium in my heart to to issue that little beat that actually says, hey, pump and pump again and pump again. You know, where's the drummer that's keeping that beat? Is that drummer inside of me? Is that drummer a macrocosmic concept? Is it an interdependent concept? Is life its very definition, the interconnectedness of the syncopation of every one of those beats from the cosmos to down to the micro? You know what? It doesn't matter to me because what I know is my heart's beating and I know I'm not thinking about it. I'm not I'm not sitting there going, did I did I remember to do the heartbeat? Did I remember to do the heartbeat? Because life is conspiring to dance with life. Life as an emanating source is a wellspring of the provisioning that says, I don't need to teach my mitochondria how to break down glucose because they come with the knowledge that equips them to know how much energy goes to what cell and how does those cells interact with everything else. And not just in my own body. What I have is the ability then to engage with the rest of the world. So I know how much effort to put into the shovel in the garden to turn over the soil because I know 
that my interaction with the earthworms and the, the biodigesting of the microcosms of my garden soil are actually, they know what they're doing and I'm oxygen, oxygenating them and I'm interacting with them. And listen, the dance of a world in which you actually know that you're emanating life force is interconnected to, or as I refer to in the film, covalently bonded to everything else. And, and let's unpack covalence for a moment. What is a covalent bond? A covalent bond is so beautiful because whether it's hydrogen and oxygen in our simplest of models, right? Hydrogen and oxygen, when they get together and form water, get to do things that gases don't get to do right? Gases don't get to make waterfalls. They don't get to make rainbows. They don't get to do all the cool things that water gets to do. And so hydrogen and oxygen know that if they hang out together, even though they preserve their identity, right? Hydrogen is still hydrogen, oxygen is still oxygen. They preserve their identity, but in covalence, they get to experience something that individually they cannot experience. Now, Think about that exact same model applied to the human species, right? We are, like right now, the three of us and the community that we're actually enabling right now with this conversation, we have a valence, we have a connection where the energy that we are now as the sum of three times the network we touch, what we're doing is emancipating an energy that is not thermodynamic. This is not something that was created or destroyed. It's not something that changed form. Literally by our valence of our connection, we are manufacturing energy. That's an emanating source. That's an abundance. That's not a sufficiency. That's an abundance. And life teaches us all the time that it wants to let us live in an abundant expression of experience, not a sufficiency, consumer, linear consumption to extinction model. And, and, and what we can do, and this is not hard. It's, it's, it's not even a difficult mental shift because what we'll realize very quickly is that the other model is actually harder to live with. The other model that says you are here to consume, you are here to extinguish. That model is harder to maintain than a model that says we, the people, are in fact enlivened and enriched when we, the people, fully live. And the more we connect and the more we engage, the better that living is. Wow, I love it. I love it. So good, Dr. David Martin. Thank you for sharing that. Sovereign, how do you feel in response to what we just shared? Uh, yeah, I, I'm in a very pleasant way sitting on the edge of my seat here and recognizing <laughs> what I call the syntropic nature of your mind song. I've been spouting myself for the last years, ever since I studied syntropic agroforestry and, and having been so involved transitioning farmers out of industrial farming mentalities into regenerative farming practices, recognizing that it's all in the mindset, it's all in how they perceive reality yeah. from this scarcity model into an abundance model, but they can't see the abundance model because they're afraid of death. And so I've uncovered so much of what you speak to, but then to hear it in the, in the eloquence and the fullness and the richness of the language, I, I hear this syntropic emanation and 
in that I, I, I rejoice within myself. It's like, wow, there's so much that I get to lean into here and expand into. For me personally, without having in the past being kind of stuck on it, but I've really recognized for myself because I kind of feel a little bit reluctant to say that syntropy is the missing link. But if that was indeed taught, an abundance-based, nature-based, life-based, intrinsic um, kind of systemic orientations of life, if that was all brought into our education, then we would not have a fear of death system. And it's just such a delight to to soak this all in and to find even even more richer words that um, that for me I, I get to adopt and I get to feel into because they all paint pictures in my mind, and I see that that is something of of tremendous significance in in the shifting community, the shift in mind, and the shift in that. On the one hand, it is so simple, but then seemingly it's not easy. And this is, of course, something that you, uh, together with Kim, are making yourself also in, in the physical available for. And we spoke about that earlier this week, how the the analog connection in our daily life is so so relevant and yeah. how you find that um, having the, the priority over the, the digital connection, so to speak. And I'd love for you to share a little bit around this living now and living fully, like what are some of the, what are some of the beginning steps for, for a, a concreted in mind that is filled with entropic belief systems and is still stuck unconsciously and unawaringly. This is not something that we should all get, you know, bummed about. It's just like, yeah. that's just where we are at. Yeah. But how do we crack open that, really kind of consolidated soil that that hardened soil that is like no this is how reality is because that wasn't working it isn't working and it's certainly not going to get us to the beautiful images that i receive when you're when you're painting that picture of what is indeed possible so i love to tell the story of the 1898 gold rush um, the 1898 gold rush was very funny because people who were prospectors who had figured out how to blow up dry mountains in Australia and dry mountains in California went up to the Yukon territory and, um, and took the same dynamite and the same drills and the same picks and, and, and put the dynamite in the holes and, and blew it up. And, and unfortunately they, they were met with what happens when you dig a hole in permafrost and, and you blow it up with dynamite, it kind of just goes poof. And the whole mountain doesn't fall apart and everything doesn't fall apart. And, and and so you're up there and you're freezing your balls off and you're like, ah, I can't stay here. And the grizzly's going to eat me. So, so I leave. And then in 1899, a couple other people go up and they do the same thing and they go, ah, grizzly's eating me and I'm going to run off. And, and, and then a couple of years later, um, there was a gold rush. But if you understand how the gold rush actually happened, what happened was little micro cracks opened up when the little dynamite went off and then water seeped in and did its freezing and thawing and broke open a little bit. And then, and then water ran down again and opened and cracked open a little bit more. And, and in a couple of years, water, not dynamite, water was what opened up the Yukon gold rush. Now, now why am I saying that? 
because our brains are like the, the permafrost in the Yukon. We've been so conditioned to think of the world as, well, of course it has to work that way because so many people act like it works that way. We're, we're living in a world of frozen, dense permafrost. And what our challenge is, is how do we do the little depth charge that doesn't open up people's mind? What it does is open up a crack that water can flow into that can freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw and before long, then the gold comes out. Where we are is exactly at that point. Where we are is is we're, we're putting dynamite into permafrost right now. And so, so what's a simple thing we can do? Uh, Kim and I teach a process called integral accounting. And the simplest way I can describe it is that we, we actually do what's a process called slowing down to the speed of consciousness. Now, that's a cute phrase, and it's a metaphor, and it's really important. What it means is that for everything that you think, you invite yourself to think about the exact same thought through six dimensions. The first dimension, very simply, we call it commodity, but is what is the matter or the energy that's behind the thing that I'm looking at? So let's play, shall we? Let's play with coronavirus. <clears throat> the matter and energy is a genome. That's all it is. It's just a genome. It's just a thing, and it's a sequence of, of energy contained in a molecule, and the molecule is called a ribonucleic acid molecule. Um, in this particular case, a deoxyribonucleic acid. And, and, and it's, a, it's a thing. It's just, that's it. Now, the second filter we put on it is what we call custom and culture. It's our perspective of the thing. Okay? So the first thing is it's just an is thing. It's just this string of nucleic acid. And then, and then the what it is from a perspective standpoint. Well, what it is from a perspective standpoint, we've decided to call it a pathogen. Okay, now listen carefully to what I just did, because what I just did is a little bit of a mind bend, right? Because I've taken something that exists, and now I've classified it as an enemy of me. I've called it a pathogen. But is it a pathogen, or is it information? Or is it a natural occurring strand of whatever? And by the way, don't obsess about it, just hold the question. When I call it a thing, have I put energy onto it, which now takes me to put energy onto a thing that otherwise didn't have energy. It was just a thing. Now I put energy on it. Now I'm responsible for the creation of its ill effects because I put the ill effects on it. Okay. Third, knowledge. What's the story we tell? Well, the story we tell is about contagion and, and fear of death and fear of illness and fear of this and fear of that. And the story we tell is not our story. It's a story told by the last only few hundred years of human narratives. We didn't used to tell stories about the world attacking us. We used to tell stories about the world conspiring to help us and conspiring to heal us. We decided to tell stories about the world attacking us. And that's a 1700s and 1800s innovation. That's not a human story. That's a postmodern industrial version of humanity story. And let's get clear on that. So now what has happened? Just by slowing down and asking the question of coronavirus, I've now started seeing that I'm energizing the story, which is ultimately harming me. And now I go to the money, the fourth section, the fourth component of this, where I go, oh, coronavirus was patented by the CDC so they could commercialize it. 
oh, so this is about an industrial complex. This is about pharmaceuticals. And then I go to 2003 and I go to April 28th, 2003, and I see Sequoia Pharmaceuticals patented a vaccine on a spike protein to actually inject into people so that they could actually have a vaccine for coronavirus in 2003, on April 28th, 2003. Not in April of 2020, when we were told Moderna and Pfizer invented this thing. In 2003, it was patented, and the spike protein was the thing that was going to be injected. Listen, that's a technology. We know that the whole story of coronavirus was inextricably part of a vaccine mandate, which then takes us from our technology fifth view to the sixth view, which we call well-being. And in that sixth view, we actually realized that we were told that well-being came from the avoidance of death rather than the celebration of life. Now, what I just did with coronavirus is I did an integral audit of the six dimensions of the story of coronavirus. What's its matter and energy? What's its custom and culture? What's the perspective? What's the story we're telling? What's the knowledge that it holds? What's the money? What's the economics of it? What's the technology? How are we getting a consensus experience of it? And what's the well-being of it? Well, it's actually shaping us to be fearful of illness and death rather than celebrating life. When I do that, and, and by the way, what I just did, I do all the time. I, I slow myself down to the speed of consciousness and ask the question, is reality what I'm seeing or is what I'm experiencing something I have to energetically impose on reality? Listen, people, it's not hard. Six dimension questions. What is the thing? How am I trained to perceive it? What's the story I tell about it? What's the value distinction? What's the value hierarchy around it? What's the consensus experience and how does it impact well-being? Those six questions you can apply to every part of your life. And by applying those questions, what you find out is that in nine times out of 10 experience, you are the architect of your own slavery. You are the architect of your own restrictions of life. And you, by virtue of that, also are the architect of your own emancipation. Because the minute you step into a reality that says, oh, slowing down to the speed of consciousness, asking those six questions, have I, in fact, entrapped myself or am I truly a victim? And the answer is, we always are trapping ourselves and we never are a victim. But when we operate at the speed of reflex, where we actually are conditioned to respond and we are told, oh, there's going to be a mandate. And then we go, oh, we have to protest. No, you don't. Slow down to the speed of consciousness. Engage consciously. And when you do, what you realize is that you have the liberty at any point in that process of going, I can tell a different story. That's so good. I just love the way that you really comprehend how life functions and empower us all to recognize, you know, the yeah. potentials when we slow down and just really settle into the truth of our own story and how we're navigating our lives and not getting caught up in the chaos mayhem of everything that's going on, but choosing to make that decision within to yeah. re realign with what we feel, you know, purposeful and called to in our life that makes us come alive and makes us bring, brings us joy, brings us happiness and fulfillment and 
it's such a potent sharing, uh, Dave. I really appreciate you going in so much clarity and depth in all of this. I can really sense that you've, you know, really contemplated a lot of this for some years now. And the way that you're just able to um, elegantly, like, articulate your perspective and the, the scope of your, you know, the complexities of your experience, it just it's so... So beautiful to um, to just to receive. I'm going to have to listen back to this the three or four times just to really let it just soak into my cells on a deeper level. But I just yeah, just really really wanted to appreciate you for taking the time for your life, you know, and dedicated your your um, your energy to this cause. And um, just I, I just so appreciate you coming into the light even more by just spreading this so openly and willingly. And um, yeah, just hope that we can support you to get this message out there further. I know you're doing workshops quite often with your partner, Kim. You're doing regular live videos. And um, any way that we can continue to support you, share this message with the world because I just really feel, I know from my own experience, it's um, helped me into process my journey and, and I'm sure it can help many, many more people too in this moment in time. One of the things, Shay, that I really love is the opportunity to... Um be an advocate for life without being dogmatic. Mm. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I have been so, so, so richly blessed by, you know, insights. I've lived with communities of persistence around the world in places that, you know, Occidental and, and colonial minds call indigenous. But I like to call them communities of persistence. People have figured out so, how to dance with the world that they're living in. Um, and, I, and I've lived in environments where I know that the human condition that we paint with a broad brush is so careless when we actually find out that there are people today living in, in ways coherent with the universe. Like, so, so knowing that I have lived literally you know, with communities who actually practice living, I, I, I have this beautiful uh, role kind of as this Occidental ambassador to say, hey, there is a human race that's actually really still living and, and we have a lot to learn from them. And so I feel very fortunate to be an advocate for, in many respects, translating between worlds, you know, translating between the world that um, these beautiful, persistent communities have have shared with me. And then obviously my own narrative, which is all I'm doing is, is trying to put poetry, trying to put form, trying to put language around it so that we can access their wisdom in a way that that may be translatable into kind of a, a, a more, you know, technological or industrial narrative. Um, but I, I, I have to say that, you know, I stand on um, a, an amazing, amazing mountain of gratitude for the people who have opened up their life and their living so that I've been exposed to a uh, an evidence base that says that humans have an amazing capacity uh, to, to live in, in this amazing harmony. And so when I'm told what the human condition is, I, I kind of laugh. I mean, you know, it, it's actually not as dire as people make it out. Um, there, there are people practicing right now around the world. They're practicing living in ways that are absolutely coherent with nature, absolutely coherent with their ecosystem, um, absolutely abundant and provisioned. Um, and they're not worried about what ABC or CNN or, you know, what a Scott Morrison or a Joe Biden is going to say. They simply don't care. Um, they don't care because in that dimension, the relevance of those structures cease to exist. And so 
in in our conversation, I think what's important is we we don't get nostalgic and we don't fantasize about some sort of ideal utopian condition. What I'm talking about is a condition that I practice every day. Like the guy who you see wearing a bow tie or bald or whatever, like at what I describe is what I practice every day. And, and the importance of that for this conversation is simple. I look at the effect that I have had, not in this situation alone, but certainly in this situation, and the effect that I've had over the last now 35 years of, of my professional engagement with the world. And I look at the effect that it's had. And what I know is that I'm not advocating for an ideal. I'm advocating based on the evidence of my lived experience. So it's different. I'm not promoting an idea. I'm actually trying to translate a methodology that I know I can share, which happens to work. And it happens to work because my life is the evidence of it working. That's why I promote it. Not because it's right. Not because of, you know, some sort of absolute dogmatic position. It's, it's the evidence of living that indicts the fallacy of the industrial pursuit of the avoidance of death. Such a powerful message, Dave. Thanks so much for taking the time to share this with us all. Absolute and, honor. Um, I'm so delighted. Yeah, it's so good. On a, on a last, uh, last note, David, I, I just, um, I'm curious what your take is on with your awareness of the global infrastructure of um, I call it cabal or whatever name we want to stick to it, the network. Um, there seems to be um, a lot of power driven out of the U.S. to cause the infrastructure to happen. And um, I have lived um, a very pleasurable life in Australia for over a decade. Shay is there. Uh, it's a place close to my heart. Um, my younglings live there. They're still nested up in the upper rainforest. So the, uh, the threat of the, the jabs and the, the, the fantasy of mandates are, um, are still only slowly seeping into that, that, yeah. that landscape. But I'm, I'm hearing from different peoples and their perspectives that the showdown is, is this, this is Australia as the country that is going to become a turning point. And then I hear from other people it's like, well, but you don't hear anything about New Zealand. Why don't you hear anything about New Zealand? Because that's actually even the bigger showdown point. And I'm, I'm, I've been sitting with this and it's like, well, as I just hear you share those six dimensions and I'm like, well, that's the story projected. Yeah. Um, I find myself recently over the last months through the, the gifting of my beloved. Um, she said, did you just make that up? And I would be like, yeah, actually I did. I just made that up. So basically yeah. after everything that I'm sharing recently that comes across as if I really know what I'm talking about, I usually kind of put a disclaimer at the end. Actually, I, I, I made all of that up just to kind of come back into humility, which is yeah. It's a bit radical. Yeah. Um, but I was listening to these close friends and they're not necessarily in the heart of the fire in these places. And then, you know, uh, New Zealand, Australia and America. And I would just like to invite you to share a bit of that perspective to maybe clear a bit of that air. At least I'm going to be reaching out to them and say, well, I, I thank you for sharing that you think that where it is for you, it, it is happening. I th Personally, I feel that it may be 
as you elicited to it earlier, it may be in the individuated journey that the turning point can only ever be reached. But I'll, I want to leave that with you too. So that's a beautiful question. And I would say the following. I, I think the Westphalian model of the nation state probably died somewhere around the Treaty of Ghent in 1815. Um, and like a dying corpse, we are mistaking reflexes for life. Um, the, the reflex twitching of the nation state, which has happened since 1815. So really, you know, really only 200 years. Um, and when we think about the Westphalian model, the, the, the lines that we drew on maps were capricious then. Uh, they're absolutely capricious now and they're irrelevant now. Um, because as much as Scott Morrison pretends to be the prime minister or, you know, Arden pretends to be the prime minister in New Zealand or Biden pretends to be the president in the United States, um, the the entirety of the world has has by 1913 become a corporatocracy where financial institutions, both banking and insurance in their unholy alliance, have taken over. 100% of the control of, of the world. There is no question that all of the other things that happen in the edges and boundaries are things that are interesting only in the diversion value. The core of what's going on is the economic system that is controlled by banking and insurance. And since 1913, they have been firmly in control of everything. In fact, I would go as far as to say in 1904, um, the insurance companies became the the dominant um, kingmaker, if you will, uh, to use a, a more Commonwealth oriented term. And so when you think about the illusion of the giant aircraft carrier that sits in the South China Sea from the standpoint of the way geopolitics looks at Australia or the small frigate called New Zealand, which also conveniently is just nothing but a naval maritime asset. Um, over which the titans will clash, evidenced by the most recent clash, which is this illusion that somehow or another Australia needs a nuclear submarine uh, supplied by the United States to fend off the uh, the the giant um, reach of the of the Chinese military aggression, which is nothing more than the fantasy in the minds of delusional idiots. Um, the The fact of the matter is, Scott Morrison is more than happy to live in the paradox of realizing that 86% of every single Australian dollar comes from trade with China, but he's going to defend himself um, allegedly with five or six nuclear submarines from the entirety of the China um, that he allegedly um, has to hate on behalf of the United States for whom he has to be kowtowing because Canberra is built on the giant underground state called the Central Intelligence Agency's Pacific Collections Facility, which actually sits underneath the U.S. Embassy in Canberra. You know, the, 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 the lunacy that goes into the notion that somehow or another, um, you know, Australia or New Zealand is anything other than the pawn in the geopolitical nonsense that's going on is, is just beyond the edge of delusional. Um, but, but the notion that there's a nation state actor at all is beyond the edges of, of the pale of ridiculous. Because in fact, what we have is a world where China was able to nationalize the global production infrastructure through its Belt Road Initiative 
It was able to do that, but it was able to do that not as a nation state, but as a corporatocracy. It was able to do that through banking and through manufacturing and through industrial hegemony. And so what we have is we have the end of Westphalia and, and people, I'm not speaking in tongues. This is very important. Nation states are already over. It's a dead animal. We don't have nation states. We have corporatocracies and those corporatocracies go by the names of Amazon and, and Cisco and, you know, Alibaba and, and, you know, Facebook and Google and so forth. The corporatocracies that run the world are agnostic to the flag flying over your particular head. So if you think that there's any relevance to your flag, forget about it. It hasn't had relevance since 1815. So stop pretending. Stop pretending that we're a nation state or we're anything else. We're not. We've been a corporatocracy since 1815. So stop pretending that we're something that we're not. But more importantly, and this goes to the real crux, when we identify ourselves not as human, but as Australian or New Zealand or American or whatever else, we are reinforcing an illusion that is set out to harm us. By creating artificial distinctions, which are drawn nothing more than the illusionary maps that were illusionary drawn by expeditionary parties in the 19th and 20th century, we do nothing but harm our narrative. And when we start seeing ourselves united by the valence, the connections, the linkages, the things that say that we stand together in how we share information, how we share narrative and story, how we share love and affection, how we share community. When we start seeing ourselves for the valences that we are rather than the identities that we take on, we actually start opening up a beautiful aperture to break the neck of this silly little dead animal that's still twitching called nation states. The, 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 the reality is that, that the great news is the end is already known. And I love this. I love the fact that the story is already written, right? The U.S. dollar hegemony, which lasted from the Bretton Woods Conference until 2026, is almost over. We know when the end date is. This is, this is milk that's going to go bad in the refrigerator. We know it's going to stink, and we know when it's going to stink. So the great news is we have an opportunity right now to recognize that we are now entering into a world where a great transition is upon us. And that great transition is going to be defined by the human who decides to participate in a narrative of humanity versus the human who decides to be subservient to the corporatocracy. Our job right now is to face a very, very simple and easy, by the way, decision, which is we have the right to either be forever dependent on the Internet of Things where Amazon delivers your milk to your refrigerator and, and charges you in social currency credits using your whatever digital bullshit currency that comes out of the Federal Reserve. You can have that world or you can choose a path that says, eh, that world's not for me. I'm not interested in what the Internet of Things delivers to my refrigerator. I'm interested in what the network of humanity engages into my ecosystem and i want to engage into that ecosystem we have the opt-out window right now and the best thing about this conversation is we know that there's a date certain on the horizon when we will have this conversation either consciously or it will be put upon us and the advantage we have right now is we have a five-year horizon right now to make that conscious decision which means that the conversation that we're having right now says, how do we link up Australia and Bali and America, not as countries, 
but as ecosystems of interconnected abundance. Because when we do, we're going to realize that Australia is not a giant sandbox from which coal and iron ore get extracted. Australia has a beautiful story. And the story is not a freaking sandbox for China. So stuff it, China. You don't get to have the sandbox because we actually know that there's an elegance and a beauty to Australia that China will never understand because we're not promoting a story of its real abundance. Australia is not an export of raw materials dug out of the ground. Australia is a beautiful, beautiful, long 40,000 year old story of humanity persisting in an amazing biodiversity filled environment. And until we start telling a better story, then Scott Morrison is going to still tell the story of coal and iron ore. But if we want to change the story, change the freaking story. Start telling the story of what you are. You know what? New Zealand is not a story told by the people who actually went across the island and killed the communities of persistence that lived there. New Zealand is a story about people who actually understand that their role as custodians of the Southern Oceans can be a beautiful watcher of ecosystems and diversity. They can be a beautiful watcher of the changing of, of seasons and what's happening in the world. And they can be a beautiful agro and a beautiful economic hub. But until we start telling a story of we the people, we won't actually change our experience. So our job is to step away. And this is where I love what you just said, Sovereign. Like, let's stop making up the story we know is false. The story of the industrial extractive extinction economy, which is Adam Smith, 1776 until right now, that story sucks because it's a bad story. We have the opportunity to tell our story, which happens to be our truth about how we know that we live in a place that is provisioned abundantly, is socially engaged by a community that actually knows how to interact, how to engage, has a story and a song line that goes 40,000 years backwards and will carry 40,000 years into the future. We know that there are values to exchange that cannot be taxed and cannot be preyed upon by those who seek to extract our life force. We know that the technologies that we need are not the digital appliances that get us addicted to the world, but are, in fact, the analog technologies that allow us to find our way to dance back into nature. And we know that well-being is not delivered in a plastic bottle that has a pill with a label on it from Pfizer or Moderna or anybody else, but it is, in fact, in the vegetable that comes out of the soil. It is in the interaction of the biome that lives within us and the biome that we influence. And once we actually start realizing that our job is to tell the truth of our story, not recite the dogma and the catechism of the oppressors that have harmed us. The minute we do that, we are free. And it's so amazing to know that it's that easy. So amazing. So amazing. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing, David. I know just wanted to bring into awareness that we've gone over time a little bit there and, and just wanted to appreciate you for just diving that's deep probably into the it. first time that's ever happened with me i think <laughs> oh so good i love it when you get on the roll it just seems it's all just coming through you and it's it's absolute privilege to be able to just receive these messages from you in this moment uh, it's time. such an honor thank you guys so much for opening up the space it's it's really beautiful sovereign thank you for reaching out to making the connection i honor kim for making this uh 
a a reality on the calendar and and sovereign how delightful to to find out in her conversation that this conversation was happening so i'm i'm delighted thank you david thank you shay um i'm full up so rich um i'm gonna listen to this again just um yeah, so delighted to be um, in the space and to be receiving front row, front seat, um, such a beautiful um, articulation of, of the story that we ought to be telling. So thank you for that. It's, it's really consolidating uh, my own convictions that I had, but I hadn't had them so clearly aligned in, in language. So very, very <laughs> thankful for this opportunity. Oh, it's Thank a delight. It's an absolute delight. And please, you know, anything we can do to share and help expand and build the community, let us know. So great. Beautiful. Bye for now, guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and for listening to this podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this series and if you'd like to listen to the full episode and get more conscious content online tune into our online video platform at earthheroestv.com hope you have a great day guys and a huge love from me and see you next time